I'm Lonnie Edwards, the founder of The Dog Agency and Pet Insider, and you're listening to the Pet Insider Podcast. This is a show about the latest and greatest across the pet world. Whether you're a pet parent or just a little pet crazy, Pet Insider has you covered. We get it. We're obsessed too. I always say to my clients and they ask me what to feed, it's like religion, politics, dog food, because people do get so emotional about it, and rightly so, I mean, it's important. Um, The one thing I say also is that there's no proven benefit to raw. There are no studies, to my knowledge, um, and people try all the time, um, that says that raw is beneficial in any way. That was a clip from the Doctors In Hot Topics and Animal Health panel from PetCon NYC 2018, which took place at the Javits Center on November 17th. For those who don't know, PetCon is a pet lover's dream filled with celebrity pet meet and greets, insightful panels, branded activations, and so much more. Visit PetCon.co, that's P-E-T-C-O-N.co, to learn more and to sign up for our newsletter to find out when the next PetCon will take place. The Doctors In panel features Dr. Lisa Lippman, Dr. Amy Cantor, Dr. Kendra Pope, and Melissa Trahi of Furballs, Inc. Now let's get back to the panel. So today we're discussing hot topics in vet medicine, and I'm going to introduce our awesome vets here. We'll start with you. My name is Dr. Kendra Pope. I am a veterinary oncologist. Um, I also am a holistic medicine practitioner. I have an integrative uh, oncology and wellness practice in New Jersey. I'm a graduate of the University of Florida's veterinary school, and I did my internship and residency at the University of Pennsylvania, and now I practice in New Jersey. Hi, I'm Dr. Lisa Lippman of at Dr. Lisa Lippman. A fuzzy pet health veterinarian, house call veterinarian. Um, yeah, happy to be here. Hi, I'm Amy Cantor. I um, am actually a, um, a vet who's practiced in New York about, well, since 98. Um, and I went to University of Pennsylvania for vet school and did a surgical residency in the Netherlands. Uh, also very happy to be here. Okay, so I'm going to start with my first question. So I want your take on grain-free food, because there's a lot of research coming out about the effects on the heart, heart disease, so I wanted each of your opinions on that. Yeah, I, I, can, I can start with this one. So grain-free food is definitely a really hot topic right now. There's a lot of articles coming out saying that grain-free food may be linked to heart disease, or more specifically, something called dilated cardiomyopathy in dogs. Um, So we don't really know if it's the grain-free food itself, or we also find that um, in grain-free food, there's something called legumes, like peas. Um, And we don't know if these legumes are actually competing with uh, the grains, or competing with um, an amino acid called taurine, which is really important for heart health, and if that may be setting it off. So I would say there's a lot of scare articles out right now. We probably really don't know exactly what's causing it. Um, So this is something definitely to talk to your veterinarian about. As far as grain-free foods go, there's no real reason to be feeding a dog grain-free food. The grain-free is, um, it's an extremely, extremely rare um, allergy in dogs, one that I have never seen. Have you, ever, have you guys ever seen it? No. Nope. Only to flax. In for flax. Yeah, but but it was through an allergy test. It right. wasn't through elimination, but I, I agree with you. I think it's really uncommon, and unless a dog really has a, um, you know, an allergy test, and so it can be documented, there's no reason to eliminate grain from their uh, diet. Yeah, I'll add 
to that a little bit too. Uh, something that a lot of pet owners aren't aware of is that dogs are actually omnivores. So a lot of people think that dogs are carnivores and they're not. Cats are true carnivores. Dogs are actually have a very similar dietary requirement to what we do as people. And so carbohydrates, grains are actually nutritionally required for their essential balance of vitamins and nutrients. And what the grain-free diets are finding that they're doing is causing taurine deficiency, like Dr. Lisa was saying. And so um, as an oncologist, I also hear a lot about grain-free diets because people get concerned about carbohydrates in food for cancer and carbohydrates feeding cancer. Now, um, that's a very simplistic um, explanation for a very complicated problem. So cancer cells utilize sugar, glucose, much differently than normal cells do. And so people have taken that and said, well, if they utilize glucose to make energy, if we starve the dog food of carbohydrates and glucose, we can starve the cancer. And unfortunately, it's not that simple. Cancer cells are very complicated, which is why we haven't been able to outsmart them yet. And so these grain-free diets, in honesty, and I think my colleagues would agree with this, they're marketing. It's marketing to certain pet owners to make them think that they're healthier and they're better for their animals. And I'm actually was very happy to see these studies coming out about the taurine deficiencies because these are not what our pets need. They're not appropriate for them. So. Um, what's important is that you find the diet that's best for your pet, and that is a conversation best had with your veterinarian or a veterinary nutritionist. Okay, our next question is, what is your take on vaccinating your dogs? I've had vets that say you should, I've had vets that say you shouldn't, so I'd like your opinion on that. We'll start with... Yeah. Hi. Um, well, I think, of course, there's a, a good, valid place for vaccines, just as there is in uh, human medicine. I mean, these diseases exist and they're real. Um, but over-vaccinating or vaccinating when um, an animal or a human has the proper uh, immunity to the disease, and that's, of course, where you know we run into potential uh, dangers from over-vaccinating. So what some of the practices have taken to doing um, is offering titers, and a titer is a blood test that'll tell you what your immune status is to a particular disease or with the vaccines. And what we have found out, just like in people, uh, we used to get a tetanus shot I don't know if it was yearly, but it was it was very common, uh, you know, commonly given. And now they've gone to every 10 years, and now they're saying maybe every 15 years in a person, unless uh, there's a reason to get a tetanus shot. Um, so certainly, with um, you know, rabies titers, uh, unfortunately, are quite expensive, and so that becomes a reason not to do a rabies titer for some people. Um, you know, every every three years, just to see if their uh, pet is uh, sufficiently immune to it. But for distemper, which we also use to vaccinate yearly, which includes distemper and parvo and um, uh, hepatitis, it usually covers about five different diseases. We have found that once a dog is properly vaccinated as a puppy. Uh, which means a, typically a series of three, and the final one coming between 14 and 16 weeks, uh, and then a subsequent vaccine the next year, that often when you're taking a blood titer, the dog already has sufficient immunity. So um, it's something to certainly consider, um, you know, asking for, 
uh, and, and thinking about and, and knowing that, um, you know, that we commonly do over-vaccinate, uh, sometimes just based on cost. The vaccine is a lot cheaper than doing the titer. So um, I think a lot like Dr. Cantor said, I think that vaccines have allowed the human-animal bond to flourish. Um, it's the reason that we have really eradicated canine rabies in the United States as of now. Not all rabies, it still exists in wildlife, but canine rabies uh, by and large does not really exist um, in the U.S. anymore. Um, one thing to say about that, though, is that the law does not recognize rabies titers. So just like uh, Dr. Cantor was saying, you can draw blood and see, are there antibodies still measurable in the bloodstream from previous vaccines, and are those dogs previous previously protected? Um, it's somewhat controversial whether or not they're still protected. Um, I take it to mean that they are. I titer my own dog. Um, however, if you titer your dog for rabies, it is important to know that the law does not recognize that. So if your dog were to bite somebody, then um, you, they, that person goes to the um, emergency department, the doctors can report that to the Department of Public Health, and the Department of Public Health can mandate that your dog either be quarantined or euthanized. So it is a risk to not have your dog uh, vaccinated for rabies, especially if they're liable to bite somebody. So, um, yeah. We do a lot of titering in my practice. Um, one, because a lot of my patients have a diagnosis of chronic disease or cancer, and um, the other reason, because a lot of people come to the clinic for that type of approach. So I can speak to the population getting titers all the time. Um, it's important for pet parents to understand that there are vaccines known as core vaccines, and then there's vaccines known as elective vaccines. And that's based on risks of certain diseases. So rabies, the distemper group, parvo, adenovirus are what is considered core vaccines. Also, this is relevant to cats as well. Puppies and kittens, uh, slightly different diseases, come into the clinic are recommended for all of them regardless up to a certain age point when their immune system is mature enough that it can recognize the diseases and mount an appropriate immune response. Now, elective vaccines are things like feline leukemia, um, leptospirosis, Lyme disease. Um, all of those vaccines are not core, which means not every animal has to have them. There's also a lot going on about canine flu right now. There's a lot of concern that there is going to be an outbreak of flu, and so a lot of veterinarians are recommending flu vaccines, those are all elective. So unfortunately, there's no one easy answer to tell all pet parents about what to do about these elective vaccines because they really are based on individual exposure. Animals living here in Manhattan are much less predisposed to certain diseases than patients of mine that live in the suburbs. So it's really important to have a relationship with your veterinarian that you trust, um, that they're on the same page with you about being mindful about vaccinating and making sure it's a um, decision made out of risk versus benefit and that you can have a conversation. Um, because just like what was said before is that sometimes it's assumed that people don't wanna do titers, they're too expensive, they're not offered, and just concurrent vaccines are given all the time, and that might not be right for every patient, especially if they've had a history of cancer or chronic disease in their history, or autoimmune problems. Okay, now we're gonna talk about dental care. Look, my dogs have the worst teeth for some reason. We have to put them to sleep. Mm. To me, I'm nervous about the anesthesia. Do you think it's really important to have good, clean teeth? 
Yeah, so I think just like us, I mean, I go for a dental cleaning every six months or so. Um, it's really important for our pets to have good dental care as well. We know that, um, you know, it's not just about oral health, but dental disease or uh, the bacteria in your mouth is really related to, um, uh, it really, it can translocate, it travels through your body, it goes through your liver, your kidneys, your bloodstream. So uh, having, having good dental health is really important. And as far as the anesthesia, goes um, you know I know it's I understand it's not everybody's favorite thing to do the risks are very very low I usually tell my clients about one in a thousand um, but uh, it for, for some dogs or cats they may get things like tooth root abscesses which would then force them to go under um, and then you're sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place if it's not something that you want to do if you are gonna um, have a dental procedure on your pet, I definitely would strongly recommend doing it somewhere with dental x-rays. Just like when I go in for a cleaning, I always get dental x-rays. It's really important to see what's going on below the gum line. We can't always visualize that just by looking at the mouth of a pet. So having those dental x-rays, having somebody who can interpret it, and then uh, perform the dental procedure for you is definitely pretty important. I don't do uh, a lot of routine dental care, but what I can speak to is um, preventative care. So that's um, the best way to prevent and treat all diseases is to try to prevent them from happening. So um, when they're young, if you can start brushing their teeth, that's something that veterinary dentists will talk about and counsel about, and even primary care veterinarians, um, because they do have buildup of plaque and tartar that is not being taken care of as often as it is for us. Um, when uh, we talk about brushing pets' teeth, it's not as much about the toothpaste. Like when we think about using, cleaning our teeth, we think about the toothpaste. It's actually more about the circular motion and just breaking up the tartar and the plaque that's building up on the teeth. Even if you could, um, there's finger brushes, gauze that people use sometimes to do that circular motion to try to break up some of that tartar. It's, um, it's worthwhile to try to breakdown on that burden of plaque that's building up. There's also some things that can be done. Um, there's water additives that help enzymatic cleaners, um, different things that you can do routinely. Um, some of the dentists will even say that those uh, non-flavored regular rawhide bones, if you give them to the pet for 15 minutes, they'll actually do some cleaning themselves as they chew on them and take them away. Um, but generally speaking, when they need a really deep clean, they need dental radiographs, because we can't ask them to say ah and hold their mouth open, we do have to have the anesthesia, which I agree is a low risk. Yeah, and I just also wanted to add that um, it's important if you're going to embark on brushing the teeth, and I really think uh, it makes sense to do it when once the adult teeth come in, so at about five or six months of age and older, and then certainly after a dental cleaning, if you can follow it up with regular brushing, it's going to really spare um, you putting your uh, dog through another or cat through another uh, cleaning or dentistry, the anesthesia, etc. But you need to brush either daily or every other day. And the once once a week is not, um, which a lot of clients say, well, I do it once a week, which believe me, I would be on the once a month thing, frankly, when I was raising my kids. But um, it needs to be done daily or every other day to make a difference. Okay, I want to talk about heartworm. So I have a few dogs and some of the vets have said, if you're not in the country or they're not around trees or grass, you don't have to give heartworm. Do you think all pets should be taking heartworm pills? 
Yeah, I'll start with this one because I feel pretty strongly about it. So um, I do think, so heartworm is a really, heartworm disease is a really awful, nasty disease. It's awful to get, it's awful to treat. Um, it takes about eight months. So first of all, it causes um, lung and heart failure. And once we know that the dog has it, which is about seven months later, because it takes that long for the um, heartworm antigen to actually show up into the, into the bloodstream, uh, it takes about eight months to treat, painful intramuscular injections, thousands of dollars, um, and so it's so preventable with treatment. Um, in New York, we don't see a lot of it endemic to this area, so if your dog misses a month or two, it's not very likely that they'll get it. However, we are shipping in a lot of dogs now from um, places that do have it, like Puerto Rico or Texas, a lot of the areas where we're rescuing dogs from the hurricanes. And it is endemic there, and it's spread through mosquito. So all that needs to happen is a mosquito needs to fly around and you know bite that dog and then bite your dog, and, and they have heartworm diseases, and you don't know for about seven or eight months later. So. Um, yeah, I feel I feel like um, and and there's really no area in the country that I am aware of that absolutely doesn't have it. There are definitely lower risk areas, um, but I think for me it's so preventable and so so the you know we always talk about everything in, in medicine like Dr. Pope said, risk versus benefit. For me, um, the the benefit is definitely to give it. So. Yeah, yeah. I uh, it's carried by mosquitoes. So there are certain areas of the country which, obviously, once the weather changes and um, the mosquitoes are um, no longer reproducing or present because of the temperature changes, there are areas like around here where people will take breaks for the winter time. Um, again, it is there's many, and this speaks to flea and tick as well as heartworm. They're all the ectoparasite prevention. Um, there are many different ones available now. Even since I graduated veterinary school, there's at least 10 different ones that I even learned about. And so they're changing all the time. The active ingredients are changing all the time. Um, and not all of them are right for everybody. So it's a conversation that if you're a snowbird and you take your dog with you in the wintertime down to Florida, then your dog may need to be on it all year round. Whereas if you live in the snow in the wintertime, there's no mosquitoes, then there may be an opportunity where you can take a break from that to try to minimize some of the exposures of the toxins and the pesticides. Um, now, the pharmaceutical companies will tell you that they're safe, and there are no um, proven studies that say that they're unsafe. There are no studies that say giving these pesticides cause cancer. Um, there have been studies that have looked at that to try and prove that, and we have not proved that in any of them. But for some of these older, debilitated animals, they have poor liver function, um, they have compromised skin barriers, there may be other techniques that we'd want to use to prevent disease um, instead of just consistently giving them these pesticides all year round. So again, it has to be a decision and a conversation that you have with your trusted veterinarian. No, and I, I agree. I've actually seen a couple of cases of heartworm where the dogs have not left uh, New York City, so it's uh, present. And the the typical drug that's used for heartworm has really been around for generations. It's different than the flea and tick medications, so um, I regard it as something that's that feels a lot more comfortable and safer to give, and uh, agreeing with Lisa, I mean, the disease is, it's a terrible, it's literally a worm that lives in the heart, because it goes to the highly oxygenated place uh, to, to develop. So it's, um, it's a very nasty disease to treat once a dog has it, and the, the as far as I have seen in my career, and just even before that, the drug used for heartworm prevention is, as far as we know, quite safe, and usually treats, um, 
intestinal parasites as well. So living in the city, that's very important because we're so doggy dense and there's, there's a lot of intestinal parasites in the city. Okay, I'm going to go on to a topic which I feel is a bit controversial. I'm not sure if you're going to have the same opinions on it, but raw food. What do we think about that? Who's going to go first? I'll, I'll start. So um, the, raw, the raw food um, movement, or I guess um, uh, the availability of different diets has become very popular. And there are a lot of companies now that are very different than what it used to be. So kind of the first raw diet movement was the BARF, the bones and raw food diet. And it was literally having owners feed raw meat. And some people still do that approach. There's a lot of other raw food diets out there now that are processed differently, freeze-dried, um, steamed to certain temperatures, left frozen otherwise. So when you say raw food, there's a lot of different options now than there used to be. Um, nutrition is like religion for certain people. It's a big deal. It's really important, especially in certain communities, um, certain um, uh, like um, breeding communities or agility communities or um, different sectors of animal health uh, because we know how important food is. Now, what I will say is that probably about 90% of my clients are not feeding commercial dog food. They're either feeding um, cooked food themselves or real foods. And so my personal opinion is that um, I think that whole food nutrition, just like it is for us, is important for my patients. And that's what I talk to my owners about. Now, is that raw or is that cooked? That's really dependent on the patient. So um, as an oncologist, the majority of my patients have completely compromised immune systems, and I will not say that feeding raw food is the right thing for them, especially if they're undergoing things like chemotherapy, radiation, or surgery. Um, there are many patients that um, don't do well on raw diets. I've had a lot of patients that owners have gotten a diagnosis of cancer or something else and overhauled their diets and changed their food and it's been terrible for them. It hasn't agreed with their GI tract. I have a patient, I think, that died of food poisoning. We could never prove it, but I think that that's what happened to him. Um, and so it's not right for everybody. On the flip side of that, I have nutritionists that I work with that in instances where no other diet will work for a patient, sometimes the raw diet is the only food that will work for them. And so there are veterinary professionals that will utilize that technique as a tool in the toolbox when other things don't work. So um, the most important thing to know is that there are many, many studies out there that show about how contaminated a lot of these diets are and that you are per putting certain groups at risk. So um, immunocompromised, very young, very very old or ill people. Um, and as a veterinarian, we have a responsibility to not only protect our patients, but to protect our clients. So if our patients are getting food poisoning, salmonella, E. coli from these diets, and then they infect their owners, that's on us for not doing what we were supposed to do for our patient. So um, there's a lot of politics in this too about what is the right thing for veterinarians to be prescribing for their pets. Um, 
There is a huge change coming in the pet food industry. There's a lot of companies out there now that are doing whole food diets, delivery services. They're popping up all the time. And our pet parents are savvy that when we sit down and we cook a really nutritious meal for ourselves, that they start to wonder if the best thing that they're feeding their dog is supposed to be coming out of a bag or a can. Um, and for some patients, that is, but not for all of them. And so um, nutrition is something that I think um, a lot of people have a lot of emotion behind and it's very important and I think that's great because we're starting to realize there are family members we want to do everything that's good for them um, but raw isn't the only way to feed food differently than commercially available there's a lot of other things that are available to feed uh, yeah, I mean, I think Dr. Pope pretty much hit it on the head. That's so funny because I always say, I always say to my clients, and they ask me what to feed. It's like religion, politics, dog food, because people do get so emotional about it, and rightly so. I mean, it's important. Um, the one thing I say also is that there's no proven benefit to raw. There are no studies, to my knowledge, um, and people try all the time, um, that says that raw is beneficial in any way over. Um, so like Dr. Pope said, in some patients where nothing else works, sometimes maybe you know that works. So I try not to, I don't condemn or condone anything, but you have to do what works for the patient. Um, the, uh, one thing, though, that we do know is that the um, likelihood of contracting something like salmonella, E. coli, um, those diseases that she was talking about that can cause serious deadly illness, not only in animals but in humans, are a higher risk when you feed raw. So um, it's just about doing your homework, figuring out what works for you and, and your pet. So. There were some uh, digestibility studies in cats with raw food. Um, basically, they fed uh, a, li a live mouse, a raw mouse, and a cooked mouse to the cats to see what type of um, digestibility and nutritional differences were in them. And they found that the raw mouse and the cooked mouse had the same nutritional profile. Basically, the cat could extract the same nutrients from it, but that the raw was actually a little bit more digestible for them. So there are some differences, um, and there are very small studies. Um, but that's the only one that I'm aware of. I haven't seen any in dogs yet. And the other thing that people have to remember is that the studies are being funded by the companies that have the money. And so until we're able to get um, research funds to do these types of trials on different foods, it's going to be really hard for us to prove anything. Okay, so how often do you think pets need checkups? Let's say dogs and then exotic animals, guinea pigs, hamsters, those things. We'll start with the dogs. I'll start. So I, th I do think it makes sense to have um, a yearly checkup, uh, even in young, healthy animals. And as animals age, uh, which depending on the, the sort of the lifestyle of the uh, dog or cat, you might want to, well, cats have, have maybe a little different um, uh, timing, time frames in New York City because they're indoors, the vast majority of them. So a yearly, yearly checkup is, is usually sufficient. Uh, typically, once an animal reaches the age of eight or so, it's not a bad idea to think about uh, a checkup twice a year, every six months, and with that, a prophylactic uh, blood test just to check, just as yourself when you go to the doctor and you have your sort of yearly 
for your kidney function, liver function, and blood counts. But the physical exam is very important just because you'll have the belly, you know, the belly can be palpated, uh, heart and lungs are sculpted, and as uh, dogs particularly reach the age of seven or eight, uh, they can develop uh, heart murmurs and things that would be picked up on a physical exam, the teeth, uh, to be looked at as well. So um, I, you know, I strongly suggest just a good, strong physical. Um, if an if an animal's under the age of seven or eight yearly, and then after that, uh, twice a year. The, typically, they're coming in twice a year for something—a little urinary tract infection or diarrhea in this city, which is you know uh, on a, on a rampage. But uh, just for a healthy animal with no symptoms, uh, that's that's what I feel comfortable with. Yeah, I don't think I have much to add there except that, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm really thankful for the owners who do come in that allow me to catch something early and to treat it early because we know that that's um, the best time to do it. So, yeah, I agree with everything that Dr. Cantor said. That was the Doctors In Hot Topics and Animal Health Panel from PetCon NYC 2018. To learn more about PetCon and to sign up for our newsletter to find out when the next PetCon will take place, visit PetCon.co. That's P-E-T-C-O-N.co. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Please leave us a five-star review and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a thing. If you have any pet-related topics you want us to cover, email us at podcast at petinsider.com. I'm Lonnie Edwards, and thank you for listening to the Pet Insider Podcast. Talk soon!